This is the Long River Podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome Will Thrower back to the show. Will, you're the first guest uh, to ever make a second appearance, but your episode on Tesla was one of the most popular episodes I've recorded. So welcome back. Thanks, Graham. Honored to be here. I have to give this little disclaimer. Everything that we're going to discuss today is not investment advice and shouldn't be treated as such. With that, Will, since the last time we spoke, you've moved from the Gulf to Australia and you've been writing prolifically under a new substack, The Money Corner. Why don't you tell us about The Money Corner and specifically about your journey from Tesla to China Renewables? Yes, it's uh, impossible to really dig into Tesla without coming across this space. Half of Tesla's production, more than half of Tesla's production at the moment is coming out of Shanghai. And the major competitors in the EV space also appear to be coming out of China now. The major driver of that is lithium-ion battery production. I think more than 80% of the world's lithium refining capacity is in China. So that's kind of the gateway to the rest of the renewable sector. The idea for the new substack was a lot more broad because over the years I have covered a lot of different sectors and different companies across different Asian markets. But the decision to start with renewables, specifically in the mainland Chinese market, was really, it's the most pressing issue of the day. The energy crisis was unfolding after the war in Ukraine started, and renewables are the obvious answer to a lot of the problems we're facing as a society and economically. But when you start looking into these industries like solar or batteries, you quickly find that 80, 90 plus percent of production is coming out of China. And so naturally, these are Chinese companies. And most of them happen to be listed in mainland China. And I think the mainland Chinese market, like the A-share market, is probably one that even global investors are least familiar with because, well, everything is in Chinese. And if you've had any experience investing in Chinese companies listed outside of China, then it doesn't really give you much comfort to dive head first into China itself. What I find fascinating about this is my impression of the China renewable energy industry was formed about a decade ago, and I've been slow to update it. But back then, there were companies like Trina Solar and Xinjiang Goldwind, which IPO'd to much hype and much fanfare before promptly collapsing and producing terrible financials for many years. So, Will, what's changed? How did China go from these early failures and problems with overcapacity across many different subsectors to this position of strength that, that you described today? I was in the same boat. So I definitely looked at all of the Chinese renewable companies listed in the U.S. At the time when I was researching all of the Chinese companies going public via reverse merger on the over-the-counter market. And it's funny because if you looked at the solar companies, I could tell that they were not a fraud because if you were a fraud, those are not the numbers you would want to fake. They always had pretty terrible numbers. And, but at that time, so if we're talking about the solar industry or the module industry, 
It was much more competitive and it was very early days. And what has happened more recently has been a clear trend of consolidation in the industry. And this is being led by multiple broader themes. One is consolidation, vertical integration and consolidation. And then the other one is import substitution. And then another driving factor is technological change. Without being too specific, you have these waves of change that shake some players out and results in more consolidated industry around kind of consensus technology. What has the role of the government been during this time? I think that China is the world's biggest importer of fossil fuels, if I recall correctly. And so that kind of just drives home the importance of transitioning to sustainable energy. China is great at manufacturing and renewable technologies need to be manufactured. It's quite different from the legacy fossil fuel model where you just have to get lucky uh, to have the reserves and then get them out of the ground. Yeah, and I think you made an excellent point in your blog too, because if you import oil, you pay the supplier once and you use it once, and then you have to repeat that transaction ad infinitum. But if you buy a solar panel, you pay for it once, but then you can use it for perhaps a 30 or 40 year lifetime. Exactly. It's changing the entire geopolitical landscape. It's something we need to be conscious of. The center of power is going to move away from the Middle East to Russia, oil suppliers to China. But that's, it's not as alarming as it sounds as fir- at first, because we're paying China 10, 10% above cost for equipment that is going to dramatically lower the cost of our energy and dependence on fossil fuels from other countries. What do you think it, it is that China has, which is difficult to replicate? Is it just that manufacturing heart that they've developed over the last 40 years? Or is it some sort of like proprietary technology? Could we do this without China, in other words, this transition to a fully renewable energy system? So if you look at the history of these companies in the solar supply chain, for instance, typically they were founded by academics, material science experts. And that is one major advantage that China has. It's just the sheer number of engineers available to work on these kinds of problems. This is something that Tesla flags as another limiting factor to their growth is finding enough good people to do everything that they want to do. So that was the beginning, right? Had a lot of very smart engineers at your disposal. The government flags these industries as important ones to develop. And Over time, before the solar industry had attractive economics, when, as you say, it looked like a dog's breakfast, there wasn't a whole lot of competition to build this industry from scratch. So it was strategically important to China. And now there are companies at every point in the supply chain that have replaced imports and are now very difficult to compete with. But it's also, if you think about building or manufacturing solar cells and wafers and modules outside of China, 
you're going to need all of these suppliers that take care of the little things. So the consumables, like the diamond wires for slicing wafers, the machines for cutting and sorting and stringing the wafers to the cells together. And where we are now, these companies are all Chinese. The supply chain is all in China. So it's possible, I think, to build these industries outside of China, but you're still going to need the Chinese companies that are at the forefront of the industry in terms of cost and efficiency, quality. So energy transforms from being a question of commodities and endowment to one of manufacturing and manufacturing excellence. That's pretty profound, actually. So, Will, I, I have to ask this, and only somewhat in jest, as a guy living in Australia who I don't think speaks Mandarin, how do you cover this industry in China, given most of the companies are listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen and don't publish in English? How have you been able to dive into this? I can speak a bit. I, I did. I've spent about three years of my life on and off in mainland China, studied Mandarin in high school and college. But never to the point where I could conduct a business meeting in Mandarin. Definitely not. But over the time I've been an analyst, I've seen massive improvement in things like Google Translate. And I've also stumbled across some resources on the Chinese internet that makes all of the Chinese analyst reports available. Um, And it's just a matter of navigating a Chinese website to get there. But there, there is actually a lot of information out there in the public sphere. It's just not, I think with any market, you have to figure out the peculiarities of that market and where to find information. We're going to illustrate what you're talking about before with an example with this company called Longy Green Energy. And from your writing on the money corner, I think Longy really embodies the journey that you described earlier, taking a big bet on technology and turning that into a manufacturing advantage and driving industry consolidation. So I think it's a really good case study for people who want to understand the transformation that's happened in the China renewable energy sector. So why don't we start with a basic question, Will? How did you hear about Longy? How did this company come onto your radar? Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't even remember. But if you are just looking at, say, MSCI China fact sheet, now I think it's going to be one of the biggest companies in the index. Okay. And what does Longy do? Longy is the world's largest solar module manufacturer. Can we parse that? What is a solar module? How do we go from silicon to cells to modules to panels so you start with sand and you refine it into polysilicon with high purity polysilicon that is then melted in a furnace and pulled into a long ingot which is then sliced into very thin wafers and those wafers are then cut into cells and the cells are strung together into a module. So the solar panels on rooftops or in solar farms, that is the module. And Longy is vertically integrated from the wafer stage to the module stage. And increasingly so beyond that, 
in polysilicon, they are not operating any polysilicon production directly, but they have strategic arrangements with the largest polysilicon producers to ensure steady supply. They have equity investments in polysilicon joint ventures. And then downstream, I think they're getting more involved in the projects, solar uh, PV projects. Can you tell us a bit about Longy's markets? To, to whom do they sell their products in which industries, geographies? Yeah, tell us a little bit about where their products go. Solar is a, a global industry. If you think about solar panels, the reason that they can all be manufactured in one place and shipped all over the world is because they pack flat. This is a lot different from, say, an electric vehicle or wind turbine where it may make more sense to localize production. So I think all of the module manufacturers based in China are selling all over the world. This is another reason why it's very difficult to move manufacturing outside of China. Some, there has been some movement into Southeast Asia, but I think the reason behind that was more, it had more to do with U.S. regulation. So tariffs on Chinese-made solar panels. And the way to get around that is to technically have them assembled in Southeast Asia. And what are the major costs that go into producing a solar panel? Raw materials now make up about 70% of the cost. And if you're looking at the learning curve, it's that additional manufacturing cost that's declining every year. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is a big jump in polysilicon prices, which has led to solar module prices also going up. And really over the last several years, they've been flat, which is the first time we've seen that because usually both costs and prices have been falling every year over year. Within that, the raw material, bill of materials, polysilicon is the main ingredient. But over time, the amount of polysilicon needed per watt is declining. And the polysilicon industry, it reminds me a bit of the memory semiconductor industry. It's consolidated. You have four or five really big players, a lot more smaller players, but the product is totally commoditized. And I think the forces that are driving polysilicon prices up now are, are going to be temporary. Is every polysilicon maker has put out a plan for doubling production capacity over the next couple of years. If you had one big spike like this before, I want to say 15, 15 to 20 years ago, and subsequently polysilicon prices crashed 90%. So I think that, I don't know exactly when this will happen, but I think we'll see lower polysilicon prices over the next few years. And so I don't spend too much time analyzing those companies, even though they're all trading at three times, four times earnings. I think key to understanding Longy is this idea of vertical integration. Actually, it's really similar to Tesla in that respect. Can you tell us a bit about Longy's history and explain some of the decisions that they made along the way, which led to, first of all, the decision to go monocrystalline, if you can explain what that means, and then the process of them becoming vertically integrated? Yes. So Longy was a pioneer in monocrystalline wafer production. Before Longy flipped the market, the majority of solar wafers 
were polycrystalline. And without getting too technical, monocrystalline wafers are slightly more expensive to produce, but have higher efficiency. And efficiency is important because that determines how much energy a solar cell can generate over its lifetime. And we've now entered a phase where being able to produce more efficient panels at scale is more important than being able to save a few cents per watt. That additional efficiency is much more valuable than the cost savings up front. And so how come no one else had tried to develop monocrystalline wafers before? Why was this a big bet? And maybe tell us a bit about Longy's founders as well and how their background shaped their decision here. Yeah, so I think that if we're talking about the background of the founders, they met each other in university. They were academic researchers, basically. And very early on, I think that around the time of the company's founding, that was the main focus, the monocrystalline wafer production. For years, it, it was a very niche process because it was more expensive and the cost benefit, the cost outweigh the benefit. And during that period, their other competitors would have been focused on polycrystalline wafer production, which involves totally different machinery, which couldn't be upgraded or switched very quickly to monocrystalline production. And that's a common theme, technological disruption. Oh, what's the name of the book? Innovator's Uh, Dilemma. Yes. The innovator's dilemma. Now, there, there was a big company called GCL Poly, which was previously dominating the industry and all in on polycrystalline wafers, and they were not able to switch in time. Also, at that time, none of the competitors were very profitable in the first place. So you really had to, it was like it, you had to make a choice. You couldn't really spread your bets everywhere. And organizationally, too, uh, you have to pick a lane to focus on. And so Longy's original focus was iterating on that process of monocrystalline wafer production and just chipping away at it year after year. And eventually the cost fell to a point where it made sense for the entire industry to switch over. But by that point, it sounds like Longy was so established and had such large economies of scale that according to what you've written, it captures most of the industry's profit. Yes. And it's also important to note that their advantage is, so at the wafer stage, that's pretty far upstream. Their competitors in cells and modules further downstream sometimes depend on Longy for allocation of that. Whereas Longy now has much better control of upstream supply. It's much easier to add new module capacity downstream if you have enough wafers, which means you can make enough cells. So it's almost an accident of history, which might have been hard to predict 10 years ago, but now monocrystalline has become a proven and superior technology. Longy dominates that, and they've integrated vertically downstream using that advantage. I think about that. Perhaps it would have been difficult to predict, but the truth of the matter is we just weren't looking. Mm. And I think it is possible now to predict future 
trends like this in the solar industry. So the technological roadmap for the silicon PV is pretty much agreed upon. There are some major waves coming over the next several years and the next decade that everybody agrees upon. But what people don't agree on is how fast that they're going to occur. But yes, so there, there are only so many ways to do something. And it's very important to understand the processes well and the laws of physics and so on. Yeah. So if we're talking about wafer production, there is no next step after monocrystalline for silicon PV. If there is a next step after monocrystalline silicon PV, it's actually another material besides silicon. The next class of material that people think will displace silicon eventually are, uh, they're called perovskites. But at the moment, this is lab stage stuff, which is not likely to reach mass production for another 20 years or so. Yeah. I'm curious then, as monocrystalline technology matures, how does that affect Longy's relative competitive advantage? So that it's already fully matured. I would say it's something like 95% of the industry is now monocrystalline. It was a very sharp S-curve. And what it means for Longy is the entire industry has fallen their way. You're now playing in their sandbox. They are the, they're the kings of monocrystalline wafer production. There's, it's very difficult to catch up Usain Bolt if you give him a five-second head start. Yeah. And that's the theme that you see yeah, else, elsewhere in the renewable supply chain and the EV supply chain too. Tesla, very difficult, impossible to catch Tesla. I think nearly impossible to catch Longy. And just so I understand clearly, is that because they are moving down the cost curve at a rate which is very difficult to catch as they get larger and more and more scale? Yes, so they're moving down the cost curve and anybody else jumping in late is going to have to follow them down that curve. You just have to think through it. How do you jump ahead an organization that has been focused on this one thing and improving this one thing for so long? It's not really something happen. What you need is another technological disruption. And uh, yeah. this is what we, yeah, what we touched on when we were talking about AMD. It was that, that one-time window of opportunity for AMD to jump ahead of Intel. You, you mentioned in the money corner a few of the examples of how Longy has been moving down the cost curve. Things like producing its own diamond wire or improving the utilization of crucibles from one to nine times. Can you tell the audience a bit about those examples? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not off the top of my head. All right. I, okay. So the cost is, is one thing. But then the other thing that Longy does very well is introducing new technologies downstream. So besides the monocrystalline wafer production, if you look at the cell technology or module technology, Longy has also been at the forefront of introducing the next big thing. And they disclose their record-setting efficiencies in new cell technologies like uh, HJT, heterojunction technology, which is one of the next big waves, I think. At the module level, they've been pioneers uh, in bifacial 
technology where the solar panel will also collect light that's bouncing off of the ground. You can increase the efficiency of a panel and over the lifetime of the panel, you're generating, I don't know, 10 to 15% more energy. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind. You, you have so these limiting factors. So there's only so much polysilicon being produced in a given year. There's only so much lithium ion battery batteries available to you. So how much value, how much additional value can you add as a manufacturer? And in solar, it's really, yeah, what is the efficiency of your end product? If you have higher efficiency, you can charge more per watt. And that is how Longy ends up with much higher gross margins than the rest of the industry. I remember you even wrote that they're thinking about creating charging stations for electric vehicles using their solar panels as the energy source. Are they really integrating that far downstream? Oh, that's interesting. Is that I just came across another listed company in China where a year ago, Longi purchased a 27% stake in the company. And of course, the stock then went up 5x or something following that news, but focused on building integrated PV. So yes, that is, that's another avenue for adding value. I wanted to talk about risks and threats. And we've talked a bit about technology being one, talked a little bit about foreign sanctions and why that's driven some production to move to Southeast Asia. We'll come back to that in a second. But while we're on the topic of polysilicon, you mentioned in one of your notes that Xinjiang is actually a major source of the world's polysilicon. And under the Uyghur Labor Protection Act, excuse me if I've quoted that wrong, it's now illegal to use materials from Xinjiang for export and, and goods for export. So how has the industry handled that? Yeah, so it's a bit more nuanced than that because about 50% of the world's polysilicon production is based in Xinjiang. And that act, what it requires is supply chain transparency. And any finished product that does not have the entire supply chain journey documented could be held up in U.S. customs. Like right now, there's, I recently saw some news uh, saying that, that about three gigawatts of solar modules, which is a lot of modules, had been held up in customs over this due to this act. I, I don't mean to, I, I think some people may be offended if I'm being level-headed about cultural genocide or forced labor. But what you're seeing actually is polysilicon production moving to other parts of China. A lot of the new capacity that's planned is in, in places like Sichuan. So yes, but it, it doesn't mean that operations in Xinjiang will stop because the U.S. market is only, say, at most a third of the global market. And right now, the U.S. is actually a bit behind in terms of annual installations. So China is about a third of the global market and they have no qualms about using domestically produced solar panels because it's okay, all okay. domestically produced. We live in a world where it feels like geopolitical tensions have risen almost to a boiling point every day. Something is being banned. Last week it was 
NVIDIA's GPUs being banned from export to China. What kind of risks does Longy face in that regard? So Longy specifically, because they are so large and vertically integrated, they have a lot of different production sites and they can move things around as needed. To sell into the US market, if need be, they could build a module factory in the US. It's something that they say they've considered in the past. So if, if the economics make sense, then that's what they'll do. The companies that face a bigger risk here would be, say, a polysilicon producer that only has operations in Xinjiang. And yes, so there you're, you're not very diversified. You're overexposed to a specific issue. Is there anything else that you'd like to emphasize about Longi, Will? One of the things that, that really caught my attention was just how profitable it's been along the way and how its profitability has actually improved over time quite dramatically. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And as I say, like there are any other kind of closing thoughts you'd like to give on the company, that would be great. Yeah, I think what you're going to see going forward, the companies like Longi are going to be very well placed to deal with all of the future technological waves in the industry which require big capital upgrade cycles. Yeah, when I look at Longy's cash flow statement compared to the, the, their main competitors, you just have to wonder who is, how are these guys going to survive without raising new capital? They have to keep up with Longy, they have to keep on investing, but at the moment they're, they're generating negative free cash flow doing it. So Longy is in the unique situation of, yeah, being very profitable, generating a lot of free cash flow to in invest in these next, the equipment required for the next generation of solar cells and modules faster and at much bigger scale. So if you look at the amount of capacity or production that Longi is adding every year compared to the other players, it's actually a much bigger share than their current market share. So say they're at about 20% global market share now. But if you just look at their share of new capacity being added across the industry, it's closer to 40%. So as that compounds, if we're looking out, say 2030, that means that maybe Longy ends up with 40% of the module market. I'm really glad you, you ended with that thought, Will, because one of the things that I think you're really good at is understanding exponential change because that throws most people. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you conceive the idea of exponential change and how you're able to imagine for yourself what it means to be moving down the cost curve at an exponential rate, for example, or seeing demand increase at an exponential rate? Like, How do you think about that? First, for renewable technology, I think the uh, you have to look at how big the market is, right? And how big we are relative to the total market now. And that will give you a sense of like how much farther we could go. So I think renewable generation at something like 3% of the world's energy generation. But it is the only source of energy generation that is growing exponentially. And you can see that the reason for that is because we need to scale the manufacturing 
of these technologies in a huge way to start to make a dent. Then I think the question that investors need to ask is, will that actually happen or why will that happen? And I would point to the cost of the technology today versus the benefits that you get from it. The payback on a rooftop PV system is something like six or seven years, but it's a 25 to 30 year asset. So you're getting your money back in seven years and you're not paying any energy bills for the next couple of decades. That's a no brainer for a lot of people. And there are companies set up that that they do all the financing for you. You don't even have to put money down. You just let the guys come put the system on the roof and then you're not paying your energy bills or cut down significantly. So yeah, if you think about that, the global demand for this is just, it's the size of the world's energy demand because there is no cheaper alternative. Yeah. And I think that what we're going through right now, it's not, the industry can't respond immediately. We can't make twice as many solar panels tomorrow just because energy prices have gone up a lot and now everyone realizes that they need them. It takes a lot of time and planning to increase production of these, these things at, at scale. But I think it's very likely that this experience is going to accelerate those plants because clearly demand is much higher than even the module makers themselves would have thought. Yeah. Wow. That's such an interesting place to finish, Will. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and your learning on Longi with us. I know the Money Corner discusses a number of other companies. How are you going about looking for other ideas then, Will, in, in China? And just really briefly, can you offer some examples to us? Yes. So the Longi model of vertical integration, you're not going to find that replicated too often because really there's just one winner, right? There's one, one big winner for solar modules. There's one big winner for batteries, with CATL. There's one big winner for EVs. So the other ideas that I'm finding in the supply chains are you can look at specific processes, specific steps where Chinese companies have grown to replace imports and there may be one winner that has a majority of the market. So I've seen 70, 80% market share, some of these for say crystal furnaces or uh, solar cell stringing machines or the diamond wire. So that is, that's one source of ideas. And then the, the, these companies, if they are, they have the kind of organization that it takes to develop a new technology and win a market, then they may be able to do it again. And so there's some companies out there that, that have dominated one part of the supply chain and now they're going after another part, maybe targeting part of the chain that is still dominated by higher priced foreign competitors. There's also actually a lot of overlap between the PV supply chain and semiconductor supply chain. Because silicon is a semiconductor, right? So I think the standards are a bit different, but the processes, some of the processes are essentially the same. So the way that 
silicon wafers are made for solar panels is very similar to the way that they're made for semiconductors, but the semiconductors require higher purity. So as these Chinese companies move up the value chain, then there are more opportunities for growth in the semiconductor industry. And that is another industry that the Chinese government has put a lot of emphasis on. And when, to your point about the U.S. blocking NVIDIA chip sales to China, this is just, this is a massive opportunity for some company in China to step in and win a new market. Cool. Lots of moving parts, lots of opportunity. How can people learn more, Will? Yeah, I publish ideas on my blog at the Money Corner Substack. And if anything strikes a chord, feel free to, to reach out and contact me through that site. Great. Thank you, Will. It's been another fascinating conversation. I really am grateful that you came onto the show. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you. And if anyone enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, feel free to visit my website too, www.longriverinv.com. Thanks. Take care and safe investing.